It's one of those bright winter mornings in Washington, and I'm standing in front of the Supreme Court building with Jose Hernandez and Beatrix Gonzalez. She goes by Betty. It's a very impressive building, very... Um, it's huge. It's huge. It's, <laughs> just to be here, it's... Just to be here, is, it, it, it's... Wow, uh, I can't believe we're here. This is their first trip to the Capitol. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case that could limit tech companies' use of a legal shield known as Section 230. It's a 26-word snippet of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. And the case, Gonzalez versus Google, could change the Internet as we know it. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States... Section 230 was created when the number of websites on the Internet only numbered in the thousands. It was written to protect early Internet companies from lawsuits. The idea was that when their users slandered or defamed one another on the early bulletin boards and in chat rooms, those new Internet companies shouldn't be held responsible. Now, all these years later, it's become a kind of qualified immunity for big tech. Jose and Betty will be in the courtroom because Naomi Gonzalez, Betty's daughter, was killed in Paris by members of ISIS in 2015. Good evening. We start with the breaking news out of Paris and what at least at this moment looks to be a city under terror attack on several fronts. And lawyers for Gonzalez are arguing that YouTube, or more specifically its parent company Google, bears some responsibility for Naomi's death because their algorithms pushed ISIS content to would-be recruits and helped radicalize them. And as they heard arguments, the justices made clear that they're wading into matters they aren't entirely comfortable with. Your position has gone further than I thought. Let's say I retweet an ISIS video. Or is, does my putting the thumbs up on it create new content? I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. <laughs> I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, we revisit Gonzalez versus Google. Advocates for a change in the way Section 230 is interpreted say it's time to hold companies responsible for what's posted on their platforms. The feeling is that it'll give companies an incentive to invest in harm reduction. Big Tech, for its part, argues that rolling back 230's immunity will end up hobbling the Internet and muzzling free speech. What does it feel like to know that Mimi is, you know, part of a Supreme Court case? We can never imagine that her name is going to be mentioned here in the Supreme Court. And there's the possibility that um, the way that social media direct the information right now, it can be changed forever. Because of her? Because of her, yes. Stay with us. In Norway, a woman's boyfriend forgets who she is overnight. In Detroit, a man is arrested, but he was never at the crime scene. In Spain, disturbing pictures of young girls have appeared, and no one knows who's behind them. 
Something strange is happening. A collision between people and artificial intelligence. Discover more in The Guardian's new series, Black Box. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes Monday and Thursdays. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. I'm an attorney here in Brooklyn, New York. Among other areas of practice, I've done a lot of work representing victims of terrorism. Bob Tolchin is part of the Gonzalez legal team. And the legal team is arguing that Google and YouTube bear some responsibility for not just allowing ISIS videos to remain on their platform, but also for using algorithms that recommend them to a wide variety of impressionable people. It creates communities. So if, if you like beheading videos, you're going to be shunted to preachers who talk about beheading, and it, it links people who never would have met. This isn't a new argument. Back in 2010, he represented victims of terrorism in Israel, and they found terrorists who were inspired by things they saw on social media. And then they were tracing that to actual attacks. Then, in 2014, ISIS roared on the scene. The group took over huge areas of Iraq, declared a caliphate, and then used social media in a way no other terrorist group had ever done before. Bob Tolchin says that YouTube's recommendation algorithms amplified their message. And it isn't just ISIS. It could be anything, he says. Try this. Pick something really weird, like, you know, eggplant horticulture. And start looking up videos about growing eggplants and planting eggplants and cooking eggplants and fertilizing eggplants. If you do actually do that, YouTube will start helpfully sending you a stream of eggplant videos. Facebook will start introducing you to other eggplant lovers. YouTube's business is selling advertisements. And they trick you into watching the advertisements by keeping you zombie-like in front of your monitor. So they entice you by saying, you liked this eggplant video, here's some eggplant sauce, here's how to make baba ganoush. Before you know it, you're part of a whole community utterly obsessed with eggplant. Abdullahi Yusuf is a young man from Minneapolis who watched a lot of those ISIS videos on YouTube. I interviewed him back in 2016 when he was just a teenager. And he said he was surprised by how effective the videos were. You know, it's like the message is for you. Like, get up off your butt. And if you don't like it, go do something about it. And here's why you should go do something about it. And, you know, it's just check, 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 check. That's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And, you know, um, sign me up. His friends introduced him to the ISIS YouTube channel, and he said they watched those videos all night. They kept getting one after another after another. This was long before the Paris attacks at the center of the Gonzalez case. All this is not to relitigate Abdullahi's case, but rather to illustrate just how skillful groups like ISIS are at using social media to find people like Abdullahi 
and keep them on the channels. But 230 goes beyond terrorist groups like ISIS. Tech companies have used Section 230 as a shield against allegations on a number of fronts, everything from facilitating arms sales to human trafficking. And if the justices decide that 230 has been misinterpreted all these years and doesn't afford such broad immunity, tech companies could be liable. In its Supreme Court brief, the Biden administration said there should be a line drawn between run-of-the-mill algorithmic sorting and manipulation. When an online service provider substantially adds or otherwise contributes to a third party's information, the government said, then it can be held liable. When we come back, the 26 words at the center of all of this. The Supreme Court's never reviewed it before, so they could just completely upend everything that courts have ruled on Section 230 and the Internet in general for more than a quarter century. Stay with us. What if someone you love asks you to help them die? What would you say? This is the powerful question at the heart of the ultimate choice. The series follows the journey of Michael and his wife Anne as they grapple with his request to choose the way he wants to die. I'm Rob Cribb, and through their story, I learned a lot about my own family. I hope the show is a way to start conversations many of us want to have, but rarely do. The Ultimate Choice is out now. So next up is Mr. Jeff Kossif. Uh, Mr. Kossif, please proceed. Chairman Thune, Ranking Member Schatz, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for providing me with the opportunity to testify about the history and purpose of Section 230. Jeff Kossif is a cybersecurity law professor at the United States Naval Academy. He wrote a book about Section 230. It's called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. And those 26 words are... No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Back in 1995, online services like CompuServe and Prodigy were all the rage. In fact, Jeff actually remembers being fascinated by Prodigy. I had a friend whose father worked for a computer company, uh, really, it must have been the very early 90s. Uh, so I was even in middle school, and he showed me Prodigy. The power of Prodigy puts the people in your community of interest at your fingertips. Which I just thought was the coolest thing. It was just mind-blowing that it was like a television, except you could actually interact with everything inside of it. There were forums and message boards, and Prodigy did this thing that people didn't talk much about then. It moderated content. It removed things from the site that its family-friendly users might find offensive. And by doing so, they found themselves open to legal action. The thinking was that they were making editorial decisions when they took things down. So they were like a newspaper. You know, newspapers are responsible for everything in their pages. So if a letter to the editor is printed in a newspaper and it's defamatory, the newspaper is going to be responsible. And since no one wants to get sued, there was a perverse incentive to just leave bad stuff up on the platform. Bob Tolchin, the lawyer for the Gonzalez family, says that was to protect an internet that was just starting out, just finding its footing. Today's internet isn't like that. 
I can imagine people on the court thinking that, look, the statute doesn't say everything that's been attributed to it. And if Congress wants to issue some kind of a blanket immunity like that, well, Congress should do it, not interpolation by the courts. Jeff Kossif, the 230 scholar, says what happens next comes down to two things. And either way, the stakes are huge. The justices could decide to strike down immunity provisions in some kind of wholesale way, which would mean tech companies could suddenly find themselves open to enormous legal risk unless they change the way they sort their content. Or the court could more or less affirm what the lower courts have already said, that the use of algorithms doesn't turn social media companies into publishers. And they won't be liable for all of it. We reached out a number of times to attorneys representing Google in the case, and they didn't respond to our request for comment. Of course, at the heart of these Supreme Court cases are people, people like Mimi Gonzalez. Betty and Jose run a barbershop in the Los Angeles area, and a few months after Mimi was killed, the phone rang at work. They called me. And they said, Mr. Hernandez, just uh, this is the secretary of President Obama from uh, Washington, D.C. We would like to speak with uh, Mrs. Gonzalez. Can you please uh, uh, let us talk to her, please? So I said, okay, well, she's right here. And she I, said, uh, back in the day, so I didn't want did to you talk think to it was him. a crank phone call or did you think it was really him? I no, think it was him because uh, when we got the, the phone call, it was zero, 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 zero. Like, <laughs> who's that? Oh. And I wasn't even going to answer the phone. Right. But then, you thought it was a spam call. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, uh, Mr. Hernandez, I uh, want to tell Ms. Beatrice that uh, I know I all the pain that she's going through. My condolences to you and the Gonzalez family. If, if there's anything that you need, you feel free to call me at this number. My secretary will wow. help you. And I was like nervous. I'm like, well, thank you for calling Mr. Obama. Wow. I was speechless. Did you put him on speaker? Yes. Yeah. No. Yes. Really? Wow. Everybody was there, just like. Wow. Mimi Gonzalez was working on a degree in industrial design at Cal State Long Beach when she got it into her head that she needed to study in Paris. Betty had texted Mimi just a few days before the attacks. Mimi had tapped out the word mommy. She like telling me like I'm okay. I I I don't I'm thinking of you. I love you. I don't need nothing from you right now and um but you I have you in my mind because I'm testing you, mommy. And Betty typed a single word back. Mimi. And then by me answering Mimi is like telling her I'm here for you. I love you. I always um going to be here. We are just really connected. The details of what happened two days later were heartbreakingly simple. Mimi was at a restaurant in Paris, and it was attacked by ISIS fighters. She died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And that's how her parents found themselves attending oral arguments at the Supreme Court, and how they got into the middle of a discussion about the role Google might have played in radicalizing the people who killed her. She never took anything for granted, and she always wanted to help people, and 
and that's what we're doing with this case. So I think that she'll be approving for us to be here. Will you feel she's with you? Yes, definitely. She's she's with me. She's 100%. with me a hundred percent and and everything. There's a lovely picture of Mimi in Paris. She's in the middle of a group shot with some other students studying there too. And they all have that happy, scruffy college look, the one that says they have their whole lives ahead of them. It was taken less than a month before the Paris attacks. Mimi had posted it on Facebook. This is Click Here. Leaders gathered at the Munich Security Conference last week to talk about Ukraine and China and cybersecurity. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky opened the meeting on Friday with a speech from Kyiv. And he said if Ukraine was to topple the Russian Goliath, he needed help to arrive soon. We can make sure that there is no alternative to our victory. He can still destroy many lives, many. That is why we need to hurry up. We need the speed. speed Alexander Martin is the London editor for our sister publication, The Record. And he was in Munich, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about what he saw there. Alex, what was the mood like? Um, President Zelensky had opened the conference on Friday. He gave a speech from Kyiv asking for Western support to be delivered more quickly. And there was a mood underneath everything that maybe that hadn't been listened to, maybe that hadn't been answered, that there was this crisis ongoing and the lessons from last year hadn't maybe yet been fully learned. So you spoke with NATO's David Van Weel, who's the Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges. And what did he have to say? He was an interesting person to speak to. He said, uh, you know, for, from his perspective, the conference was interesting because it provided an excellent opportunity to catch up and get up to speed on what's happening in the world. Uh, Van Wiel told me that the work that companies like Microsoft and Google have been doing in Ukraine is really unique. When the war broke out, he said, there was a, a large cyber component to it. And the support from the private sector was really crucial for Ukraine in keeping its defences up. We all have to realise that a large part of the infrastructure that we're talking about is in private hands, uh, that a number of these companies possess capabilities, uh, both uh, quality and quantity, uh, that states can never match. When you walked away from the conference, what was your sense of it? I think there are two very interesting areas that, that loom as a result of this conference that maybe weren't so present before. One is, is certainly the role for private companies, but the other big factor that I think has just becoming apparent is China's role in the security architecture of the world. Um, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, presented a peace plan. Dear friends, colleagues, I am delighted to join you in person at the Munich Security Conference after three years. This, this peace plan has not actually been uh, presented yet. We've been told that President Xi has a peace plan that will be 
put forward. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said it is not very detailed, said it wasn't really very sufficient. But it suggests that China sees itself as having a role in this conflict. That was Alexander Martin. He's the UK editor of The Record. Thanks so much for being with us, Alex. Thanks for having me. Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence stories. Europe's top cybersecurity agencies have warned that groups associated with the Chinese military are stepping up their hacking operations in Europe. The agency says groups like Mustang Panda and other advanced persistent threat actors linked to the People's Liberation Army and Chinese government have been trying to gain footholds in strategic networks inside the European Union. The agencies are seeing infiltration, reconnaissance, and highly targeted spear phishing activity. Among other things, the phishing emails are focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or the subject lines refer to official EU business. The president of Moldova, Maya Sandu, warned an audience at the Munich Security Conference last week that Russia was waging a hybrid war against her country. She said Russian-backed hackers have launched propaganda and disinformation campaigns, cyber attacks, and fake bomb alerts to rattle the people of Moldova. Moldova sits just to the west of Ukraine. Sandu described months of Russian aggression during a panel on European partnerships. She said that in the fall, Russia jacked up energy prices and then cut off gas supplies. She claimed they financed protests to overthrow the government in Moldova, including a plot that would have involved people with military training and camouflaged in civilian clothes inciting violence. She called on the European Union to help. And finally, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco announced that the U.S. government will launch a new strike force to protect American intellectual property and block threats to critical parts like semiconductors. She said the new force will use intelligence and data analytics to target illicit actors. It will harden the nation's supply chain and warn companies of malicious activity as early as possible. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer. And Gabriella Glick is our intern. The show is edited by Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski, and fact-checking is by Darren Ancrum. Our theme music and original compositions in the episode are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And we want to hear from you. So please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. Or send us an email at clickhere@recordedfuture.com, and check out our website, clickhereshow.com. That's it for this week. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.